Hi, this is Bill Corbett, author of the book Love, Limits, and Lessons, and executive producer and host of the television show Creating Cooperative Kids. Thanks for downloading and listening to this new podcast series that will offer interviews with experts, clips from my television show, excerpts from my parent coaching sessions, and even my interviews on the radio. Each podcast will feature help for parents and professionals who live or work with children and teens, so you'll want to subscribe to the entire series. This podcast is from a teleclass I held on the topic of sibling rivalry. Adults from around the country needing help with kids fighting called in to ask me questions about this very challenging behavior. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll walk away with a plan for handling fighting and arguments with your children. The first thing that I just want to go over is uh, fighting has to happen, even though we don't like that. That's how they build relationships with their siblings. There's some level of fighting and conflict that is absolutely normal. We've, we've got to make sure that we don't get into the trying to make everything all better, always trying to make life wonderful, because that's never going to happen. Part of the whole psychology of children is fighting and conflict must occur. The best thing that parents can do, teach children adequate re- resolution skills so that they, they know how to engage in healthy ways, which is basically being able to have the courage to speak up and tell one of their siblings to back off or get out of my space. And also, the other thing is you have to remember that their time that they can tolerate each other is limited. It's really good to give them breaks often and keep playtimes uh, sort of limited so that they can get the most out of it, but then they know that they can retreat if, if necessary. So let's just run through the facts real quick. Children don't automatically like each other all the time. We love our children. They're just these awesome gifts from heaven. But children don't see each other that way because one of the primary concepts you have to understand is that kids don't see their sibling as wonderful gifts. They see them as competition because there's this thing that goes on with them that they think there's only so much of mom or dad to go around. They don't understand that your love is endless and and unending, um, unconditional, just awesome thing, this gift that you have. They think there's only so much of it, so they have to get what they can get while they can get it. So there is the concept of um, of jealousy. Uh, they don't like having to compete. They don't like having to share their parents with another child. That's just a common feeling that children have. It's not all the time, but it's always there, and it could come out at any time. And the second fact is they see their sibling as competition, as I said. They have to kind of fight to get what's theirs third one is they need breaks from each other. The next one is they need their own space to retreat to and to play in. Make sure that you have uh, set it up in the home that each child has their own space to go play in. Now, I know that homes are limited sizes, and especially if you live in apartments, so you may have to get creative about that using dividers or or um, expandable gates or things. Children need to know that they have their own space to play and to, to retreat to. The next fact is they need individual connection with each parent. Really a good idea to set up date with each child. I know it can be tough with schedules and everything, and I'm not saying you have to have a date every day with your kids, but, you know, at least once a week, have a special time for that child. 
and take them out away from the house or away from the other sibling and spend time with them. And as I also pointed out in the handout, make sure it's not for you to go buy them something. Um, buying them things, it just doesn't work. They they need your time, even though they may argue with you and they love it when you buy them stuff. That's not what will actually satisfy the human soul. They need your time and attention. And that means no blackberries, no cell phones. Just be there 100% for your kids, and you will see the difference over time. See, the next fact, some fighting is normal, as I talked about. Uh, some fighting is a reflection of something going on in the child's life. So if there's conflict between the parents or the grandparents and the parents or other siblings, if there's something going on, see, there's, there's this spiritual invisible connection between the child's soul and the caregivers around them. Sometimes fighting with their sibling is just a reflection of something that might be going on in the family or in the home or with the child. But, and what can be really frustrating is if that conflict is going on at another parent's home. If you happen to be divorced and your child goes to another home and, and the, the father is fighting with, with his wife and the child can bring that home into the relationship with the siblings. They kind of act it out. Uh, some fighting is an attempt to gain the parents' attention. Remember, there's competition, so they want, they want to have your spotlight. They want to know that they are more special than their sibling. So that's why you've got to find every opportunity to make each child feel special. The last thing you want to be doing is comparing them. I think most of us know that, and we don't do that, but just we want to stay away from, well, why can't you be more like your brother? Uh, look what your brother does. Second to last one is they don't like to share, need imitation to learn to do it. That means avoid forcing your child to share things with their brother. They don't like having to do that, and they get it really makes them mad when you force them to share their toys and other objects with their siblings. The best way to teach sharing is not to say, you know, share that with your brother. It's actually to create a model for them to learn from. A good thing to do is look for opportunities often to share your things with them and to say it out loud. Let's say that you're letting them borrow something or use something or um, let's say you have a, some sort of uh, meal, a, a food item in the mail, and they want more. Give them some off your plate and say, I love sharing with you. You want to say that out loud. You want to frame it. Frame the whole sharing thing by, by imitating it and creating a model for them often. And the last one is uh, more than 30 minutes of video stimulation creates feelings of intensity. I was going to try to track down the uh, research report that I just read, one of my psychological magazines. They've come up with the guideline of 30 minutes. More than 30 minutes of video games or television creates a sense of intensity in the child. And I think some of us have seen it when you go to shut the TV off and the child just explodes. It's not really all because they want to finish watching the show. It's because it builds this momentum inside of them that almost builds towards anxiety. We really want to minimize, and of course, a lot of you who are familiar with my methodology know that I just don't support entertainment electronics for more than an hour a day. And I thought I was being um, kind of liberal with that amount, but psychological reports say 30 minutes of video stimulation. I've listed a whole bunch of things. We're not going to go through all these things because they all don't apply in every situation. I'll just start off with some points, and then I'll open it up, and you can uh, ask me questions. It's really important to understand that there's only three things that a parent controls in a child-fighting situation. 
first of all, you don't control the fight. The fight or the conflict belongs to the child. You want to raise your child so that when they become an adult, they're fully in control or they're a master of their ability to control their conflict with others. And I think I could get you all to agree with me on that. So that all starts with them now in childhood. You don't control the fight. The fight does not belong to you. It belongs to them. What you control are other components. So of all the conflict between siblings, the three primary things that you control as a parent is safety. That's the first one. That means you're responsible for keeping the children safe. But we have to define safe because, you know, if a child gets a black eye, that doesn't mean you're going to go rushing in there every time to stop it. Some children may need to feel that pain, may need to feel that, that injury, not, not a serious injury, of course. I had raised three children myself, and my two younger ones fought like cats and dogs. They were only two years apart. When they were older than six years of age, there were times that I would just guide them out the back door and close it and say, I don't have to listen to this. The point I'm trying to tell you is I'm not saying it's okay to hurt for one child to hurt another. I'm telling you that you can't rush in there with every single little physical action because that teaches children the wrong message. It, it doesn't teach them the right things. However, you do have to have a rule that safety is your number one concern. The second thing that you own in the fight is the commotion, the noise, the, the chaos. Adults are human, and there's only so much we can really tolerate and listen to. I encourage you to examine your own capacity for how much you can really tolerate. I came up with this rule of 60 seconds. If my kids are still fighting after 60 seconds, then I've got to go in there and do something about it. So I used to give them 60 seconds to try to work it out. Just try to avoid rushing right in there. However, you know, don't get me wrong. If one child is going to be really seriously injured by the other child, you can't allow that to happen. So I'm tr just trying to give you some general guidelines here. You're controlling safety. You control the commotion as to how much you can tolerate. And the third and most important thing, in fact, these are listed on the handout uh, down at the bottom. The first one is the most important, and I actually end up mentioning it last here, was teaching them about how to express their feelings to others, especially their siblings. You know, we could spend hours going over the whole conflict resolution process, but you've got to teach your child that when they feel something, it's up to them to express that to someone and to express it without hitting. And there's things that you can do. There's things I teach in my parenting class about helping the child go inside and focus on what you feel. So here's one thing that you can do. This involves when the child comes running to you to tattle. It's usually one of the components that we are responsible for in almost teaching them to lie. The child comes and complains to you and says, Bobby's being mean to me. A lot of parents take one of two actions. They say, you show me where he is, and they run in there and try to become a policeman, judge, and jury and solve it all. You don't want to do that. You want to try to minimize doing that as much as possible. The other thing parents do is say, I don't want to hear it. Go take care of yourself. Go fight your own battles. Be a big boy or be a big girl or whatever. That's also the wrong message. Best thing that you can do in this situation when a child approaches you with a problem, especially caused by their sibling, is you want to stop what you're doing, move away from the keyboard, mute the television, whatever it was that you were doing when they approached you, and then really engage with them and say, really, tell me more. So you want to say the things that will draw out what was really going on, and then what happened, and what did he do, and, what, and how did that make you feel? So 
So you want to ask a series of questions to pull out what the real problem was. Then if, if the situation is right, what you want to say to them is, what do you think you can do so that Bobby will play with you? What do you think you can do differently? Because when you start using this process to help them solve their own problems, this is very powerful. So again, just recapping, you don't want to race in there and make everything all better. You also don't want to say, get away from me, I don't have time for this, go take care of your own problems. Instead, you want to work with them one-on-one to figure out what the problem is and what they can do to solve it. So that's one suggestion I have on beginning the process of teaching them conflict resolution. Because what that does is it creates an acknowledgement that what I'm feeling is okay, there's nothing wrong with it, uh, I'm healthy, there's, I'm normal, and my mom or my dad cares a lot about me. The other thing that I put at the bottom of the handout is when fighting is not occurring, sit down with the kids and do the following. And I listed three bullets there for those of you who have, had, have the handout. The first one is let the kids know that hitting or hurting anyone is no longer acceptable. Regardless of what you've done in the past, that you're laying down a new rule. The rule is that there's no hitting in this house. It's not okay to hurt somebody else. The point that I need to make is you want to do this when the fighting is not happening. Usually what parents do is they race in there to do their lecturing and setting up rules right after something happened because it's heated and we feel frustrated and we just want to fix everything. That's not a good time to be doing disciplining with kids. The best time to be doing disciplining, preventive discipline, is when it's not happening. And so you sit down with them and you say, you know what, guys? Mom came up with a new rule, and starting today, hitting and hurting each other is not okay. And just let it go. The second bullet says, have them help you come up with some consequences if someone hurts another. This is just another idea. You can say, what should we do if somebody else in this house hurts somebody? What should that person have to do? Uh, Allow them to help you come up with consequences as to what would be invoked. Here's the secret. If you have a child help you come up with consequences, they are more likely, I said more likely, I didn't say always, they are more likely to actually follow through and comply with the consequence because they helped you come up with it or because they were a part of the planning process. The third bullet there is to teach them conflict resolution skills by letting the other know how they feel. You can bring them back to a moment. Let's say it happened the the previous day or a couple days and say, remember when the two of you were fighting? How did that start? So you want to get them, bring them back to that moment. And one child might say, well, she pushed me down or she took my bear or whatever and say, okay, how did it feel when Sarah took your bear? Because feelings is really a, it's a challenge for kids. They haven't yet developed their emotional intelligence. But you want to say, so how did it feel when Sarah took your bear? And then you want her to verbalize it. You want her to put a label on it and say, well, it made me really mad. And then you say, good, good, that's excellent. Now tell Sarah how it made you feel. You want one little girl to say, I don't like it when you take my bear because it made me feel so mad. In that moment, in that little role play, you want to go, that's excellent, that's great. And then you want to turn to Sarah and say, Sarah, why did you take her bear? And you want her to do the same thing, to center on what, what was the emotion that drove her to take the bear, because usually it's something that the other one did or something she's feeling. This is how you do it in a moment when it's not happening. You teach your children emotional intelligence through processing what I feel and to verbalize it to a child, not 
punch a child, not push them, not take something away. I encourage parents to do this as often as possible. You play this game with them about conflict resolution to teach them that it is okay to get mad at somebody else and to tell them exactly how you feel. I suggest parents do the same thing. When your kids are driving you crazy, when you've had it, to stop right there. I don't know if if any of you have gone uh, to my website. I just put an article up a few weeks ago that it's okay to tell your kids that I don't like you right now, that I'm really mad. And so go to the website and click on articles because there's one that I just put up there that that's how kids learn through your modeling. When you're at a breaking point, when your kids are just, you just like, you're ready to sell them to the zoo. You're in one of those moods and you can't take it anymore. It's okay to just stop what you're doing and say it, you know, loudly and say, I am feeling so frustrated right now because you two won't get along or because you won't cooperate. And then here's the key. And you walk away. You, you say something like, I am going in the other room and I'm closing the door to be by myself. Or I'm going to take a walk around the block. Or I am going to be in that on the other side of the house. Whatever you have to do. Make sure you come back, though. And when you come back, you want to look like the break worked, that it calmed you down. That is a great way to actually relieve your stress from, from ending up spanking them or punishing them or whatever. And at the same time, you're teaching them that you're human and that it's okay to express how you feel. Because a lot of the fighting erupts because they don't feel like they're expressing or relieving the pressure. And so when you do it, you're a great example for them to learn by. And it's okay for them to say, Bobby, I don't like you right now. I am going to my room. That's an awesome thing to teach a child because that little boy who's six yelling at his brother and walking off to his room, is one day going to be 26, possibly in a marriage, and you want him to do the same thing. If his wife has really made him mad, to just say, I am really angry right now. I am going to cool down. I mean, all you have to do is read the paper about the domestic violence out there. Some of you may know that I'm on the board of directors for Network Against Domestic Abuse, so I know very well uh, the cases that are out there. We want our kids to have high emotional intelligence so that when they go out in the world and they are in relationships, they will handle conflict appropriately and and not hurt their partners. What kind of questions do you have? Because I know what you're probably in a mode of is, is, uh, and if any of you have been through my class, you know that I teach preventive parenting and firefighting parenting. There's two different modes. What do you do when the fire erupts? What do you do to keep it from erupting? So, most parents are in a firefighting mode. They, they see the kids, the, the fights erupt, and they want to know what to do. So there are some things you can do. But let's uh, find out what kind of questions are on your mind at this point. Or, you know what, if you've got comments based on what I said or, or not. Hi, this is Tracy. Hi, Tracy. I have two boys, 9 and 10. They were adopted through social services. They're bio-siblings. And we already do most of what you suggest, you know, I get the kids fight, I'll, you know, you talk about, like, don't dive in as soon as it gets going up a minute. I let it go way longer than a minute before I get involved. I mean, I'm I'm listening to you and just sort of feeling like, uh, you know, maybe the, the problem is that because of everything that they've been through, their emotional intelligence is so stunted that I just have to learn to deal with this for, you know, five years until they catch up. 
Okay, so have you ever taken them through the process that I explained, that I described about letting someone else know how they feel? Oh, yes. You have done that. Excellent. Yes. We've, we, we've never done it role-playing with the two of them involved. But, oh, I mean, yeah, I have, I have actively for five years been trying to get them to I'm, – I'm definitely okay with anger. It's fine to be angry. I get that. It, it's not okay to hit. Like, you tell – you know, I've been trying to get them to, to express their anger. And I feel like the bigger problem really is not that – I just feel like they do it to torture each other. And and that's um, very normal. They will do that because there's but, many But I mean, variables. I'm talking about like 90% of their life is spent fighting. They're either best buddies or, okay, maybe not 90%, 30% of the time maybe. 30% they're what? They're, maybe they're best buddies 20 to 30% of the time, and the rest of the time they are just being nasty to one another in the most subtle little ways. The, Do you have the capability of separating them when it gets that bad? Oh, we we pretty much live our lives with them separated. Okay. Um, well, and my husband's what? a firefighter, so when he's at the firehouse, I usually take it in shifts. One of them's upstairs for half an hour, and then they have to rotate down. Well, first of all, I just have to say what an angel you are for taking on uh, in the adoption process because you have no idea what you're taking on from the history of those children. If it wasn't for you, they may not have a home. I just want to acknowledge you for that, because adoption is close to my heart with that, and I just appreciate what you've done. However, you may have picked up some history. Now, how long have you had the boys? They've been with us for five years. They were, um, okay. they were placed with us at almost, uh, almost four and almost five. So you so, have I mean, no I, like, I definitely know that, like, Jay's inability to um, – I know that a lot of times, like, when Jay is just being nasty to Max, when I can finally get him to talk about it, like, I'll say, sit down at the table and, and draw to settle yourself. And he'll, you know, and he'll sort of argue against wanting to do that, but I'll, I'll make him – you know, and he'll start off scribbling, and then he'll be – next thing you know, he's writing, I hate John, which is his older brother who was removed from us. We couldn't control him. You know, I know that there's a lot of deep stuff going on, Maybe I just need to resign myself to like living my life like this for however many years until the therapy can start. You know, they've come a long way. Now they are seeing someone, right? Oh yes, yeah. Okay. They're at the trauma center in Brooklyn. You may not be able to fix everything, and it sounds like you're doing the right stuff to create a foundation. And it may take you a couple of years to actually see the the signs or the results of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But keep doing what you're doing, and, and it's it's not you. It's not the situation, and there may be some deep-seated stuff in there. With adoption, you have no idea what you're taking on, and all you can do is just keep doing what you're doing the best that you can. And there may be some situations that you can't resolve because there may not be a magic pill. Okay. Thanks. Well, it's Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Our issue is that... Leo, our youngest, is two months away from turning two, and our oldest is four and a half. So every time the four and a half year old sees, doesn't matter what Leo picks up. When if he picks up a toy, if it's his, if it's Julian's toy, or if it's his own toy, Julian goes over to Leo and yanks it out of his hand. He wants whatever his younger brother is playing with. I have a hard time doing all this because Leo. You know, just started talking and so young still. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Do you ever see him behaving in a positive way, sharing? 
Absolutely. And do you take the time to make a big deal out of it when he does? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. I, I knew you were doing that, but I just wanted to check on that. We have to remember that a lot of the phases that frustrate you about your kids are going to change. They're right. going to change out of these, and they're going to drop right into another one that's just maybe even equally or more frustrating. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry to depress you, Lauren. <laughs> what you've got to do is, is first of all, um, Leo is, is very small, so you can't right. just let him fend for himself. Right. Last we had talked, you were setting up a separate area for Julian to play in. Does he still have that? I know that what Leo was doing is Leo really wanted to be with him and engage him and everything, but does Julian have his own play area? He doesn't have his own play area. What we had separate was his own quieting space. But not a separate play area. Oh, we don't have a separate play area. They each share their play areas, and we just recently put them in the same room together to get ready for the new baby. Oh, you did? New baby? Yeah, new baby. Uh Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) So I need to do that. I need to have separate areas for them. Yeah, because that gets back to the point where they need their own identity, and he needs to be able to have a place where he can retreat to. I thought, uh, weren't you setting up like a a pen in the living room or something where one of them could play in by themselves, or actually it was Julian, so that Leo wouldn't come in and, and like Godzilla and destroy his buildings and army men, right? Yeah, we kept him... Yeah, that's gotten much better. And Leo Leo knows when he's not supposed to touch his brother's stuff. He does good. But Julian gives him this look, and Leo tiptoes around around him. <laughs> now, how long have they been in the room together? Just a couple months. Okay. How is that working out so far? It's good so far because Julian's room only has books and puzzles in it. There aren't any, uh-huh. they, don't, they don't have toys. It's really, you know, like a self. It's a quiet space for them, their bedroom. <laughs> There's no toys for them to fight over in there. There's Good. no issue in their room. You know what? Adults, we need our own homes, our own spaces, yeah. our place to retreat to, and so do the little kids. And I, I know it might be a challenge with your place, although you do have a beautiful home. Whatever you can do to help him have his own space to play in, even when he starts grabbing stuff from Leo, they just need to be separated. Right. So when they start hitting each other, which they do, they both, you know, Julian will clock Leo in the head, and Leo will hit him back. I mean, Leo's too, really too small to defend himself. And that's why the separation is so important. When yeah. they start hitting and being mean to each other, they're basically saying, I've had enough of you, and they okay. need to be able to retreat and go somewhere else to play. It's tough if you're alone and you've got the two of them, and that's the challenge I you're going to figure out. I can put up. I can put separators in one of their playrooms. Okay, let's say Julian hits Leo or grabs his toys, and then you automatically invoke a separation, and then Julian starts saying, I'm sorry, Mommy, I'm sorry, I want to play with him. No, you've got to follow through with that separation. You can't succumb to his pleads or getting angry about it. you just got to separate it. And remember, we talked about talk as little as possible. Set it up in advance. When they're both in a great mood and they're listening to you, that's the time to say, you know what, guys, from now on, when someone's going to be mean to someone, they're going to play in separate areas. And again, you don't want to make it like it's punishment. You want to avoid it having it look like punishment as much as possible. It's just that, you know what, you're going to play in separate spaces right now. 
Also, uh, Lauren and Ryan, you want to demonstrate in front of the kids being kind to each other as much as possible. And, and I know you guys are great. You might have to, like, overdo it sometimes. Okay. Let them see you guys being kind to each other. You might have to play it up a little bit. You know, Ryan, if, if you ask Lauren to bring you a soda, just say, thank you so much for being really nice to me because they're watching you and they're listening to what you're saying. Yeah, we could definitely do that more. You want to take that opportunity to play things out in front of them because they're watching you and they're listening and they're learning through the the behaviors that are being modeled around them. Sometimes it's even as mild as, you know what, you guys come home at the end of the day and you just had really crappy days and you're just kind of like spitting at each other. You know, not to be mean, but you're just, oh, I don't have time for this. The kids will pick up on that. They may not imitate it right away. But they're absorbing it. And, you know, the weirdest thing is we can be going about our business around our kids, and they're sitting there playing with Legos. Even though they're not looking at us, they're still taking in what's going on. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for being on the call. You're welcome. Now, I have a question. This is Natasha speaking. Hi, Natasha. Hi. I have a 9-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a 6-year-old. The 6-year-old has just been diagnosed with ADHD, and... The older two, it's been a challenge because we've been, you know, when we play together, when we play a game or when they're playing alone, you know, they play fine until something bothers, you know, or gets the the six-year-old going and then the hyperactivity comes out and then it's very frustrating to everyone. So I just wanted to know if you had any other strategies that we could use to help the nine and the eight-year-old. The nine-year-old's a boy and the eight-year-old's a girl, and she's the the middle child, so she's always the one as the peacemaker, as you probably know. She tries to make that, you know, work out with everything, but it, it doesn't always, you know, because of his anxiety and his hyperactivity. So if there's any strategies that you could help us all with with that in um, playing games when he just comes in the room and, you know, creates a ruckus. Yeah, I read your your comments on your situation, and you got a challenging situation there. You know what? With ADHD, you want to avoid uh, any any punishment. It's so difficult for them to learn. When you feel that things are starting to erupt, is it possible for you to get involved in the activity, not as a parent, but as kind of like uh, just joining the activity to regulate what's going on, to regulate the six-year-old? Yes, I do do that. Like they play um, going on a trip or they play, you know, house or school. And, for example, on the snow day there, they decided to play school and supposed to be in the classroom. And the oldest was the teacher and the other two were the students. And then he just didn't do his, you know, homework and was getting all silly and wanting to be the child that now has to go to the principal. I had to explain to the older one, too, that it's not always about him getting in trouble, you know, because he yeah. can always be the one that gets in trouble and goes to the principal because he's always the one that doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they make him the one, you know, or it just happens that he decides to play that part and they follow through with it. When they are getting along, when mm-hmm. when things are going well, you want to make sure and engage with them and just acknowledge that check in with them and stop for a second and say, can I just say something for a second here in the classroom? I think you guys are awesome. You guys are doing a great job working together on this. And just little nuggets, just a, just a, you know, 20 seconds, 15 seconds acknowledgement and walk away. 
when you do hear the six-year-old beginning to disrupt things, that's where I would encourage you to get in there, not as a parent, but as a, um, almost like a participant in the activity. So if he starts getting them all rattled, you go into the situation and say, hey, guys, can I play? And enter the situation and kind of redirect it a little bit. If the little girl says, it's not fair, he's not doing it right, mm-hmm. and starts complaining to you, which you're probably going to do, your job is maybe to try to find an, you know, another a sudden role for one of the children or saying, well, you know what, it's okay if he does that, but how about if we all do this? Use Rather than coming across as, a, as the authority in the group, come across as a participant to try to redirect them in a different way. Okay. Neutralize the situation if you can without lecturing and without finding anyone at fault because they're going to have to learn to adapt to him and it can be a little challenging. Yeah, it happens in board games. Board games are the hardest thing because... I'm, say that again? With a board game, like the sorry board game or Parcheesi or anything like that, because he has to wait, you know, all the way around to his turn. that time dice or making noise or... That's another hard area for us, too. But we try to just so, play a game as long as we can. Right, and so as a participant, I don't, I don't mean you actually, let's say there's playing the sorry game. You can't actually get in there in the middle of it and start playing a piece, but you can sit with them, and if she starts complaining and says, you know, he's making too much noise or he's not waiting, just say, I know he's not, and kind of redirect her and say, so um, who's in the lead, or what are you going to do when you come around this turn? Just kind of redirect her and get her away from the, the thing. Sometimes if we pay too much attention to children when they're complaining or tattling about the others, it teaches them to continue to do it. In this case, you're not really giving any payback to complaining about him. You're kind of redirecting your attention somewhere else. If you don't respond to her complaints, she will generally, over time, adapt to it and, and ignore it more than make a deal out of it. Kind of like what I do with the tattling. If they come over to me, I just say, well... What do you think you need to do? Work it out, and then I kind That's of excellent. Thank you very much. Sure. Anybody else? You know, one of the things that I used to do is when the kids are fighting over something, they're fighting over an object, a lot of times I'll remove the object. I'll oh, remove yeah. the object from the <laughs> conflict and in hopes that they will work it out. So there's been times where I've entered the fight or the commotion and asked for the item, not not take it. I've asked for the item, and then when they give it to me, I'll tell them that the object that you guys are fighting over will be in the other room or it will be in my office with me. When the two of you can figure out, or even the three of you, when the three of you can figure out whose turn it is to play with it, come see me, and I'll give it back to you. We have to give our kids the space and the time and the opportunity to work out conflict on their own. Can I ask for like a, a very specific situation that comes up a lot is they have, you know, they have these Legos, <laughs> Lego guys. We get into like, that's, that's not yours. That's mine. I mean, I don't know when you get into the individual little pieces, like that's my head that I don't know whose <laughs> is whose. <laughs> you know? As they're fighting. I mean, I, I get that, that each of them genuinely believes that it is his. Right. Then I, you know, I, sometimes I'm like, okay, 
you guys sit down. You, neither of you gets up until the other one gives you permission. Figure but, it out. But, but Tracy, that doesn't belong to you. That's not your except, role. Except that they come to me trying to. Right, and so what? Like you I have get to... that it's not mine, but when they're trying to pull me into it, and so I've, tr- I mean, I, I, I've tried to like, I don't know, I can't get involved, and then sometimes it comes to blows. Then if it comes to blows, then it's a different situation. But when they come to you and say, it's not fair, he has more Lego guys than me, your job is to say, really? That just, just that, just that, really? You're, you, don't have to, you don't have to come back with a response every time they ask you. I encourage you to turn it back to them to figure out. You want to teach them. This is, how, this is an ideal opportunity where kids learn problem-solving skills. And they do it without uh, an adult telling them exactly how to do it. There's a thing that goes on in the brain where problem-solving skills occur by having more problems to solve and not necessarily with any solutions. That's good that you get it, and I understand that you know that it's not your job to make sure every child has five Lego heads and seven arms and whatever. But when they come to you and say, Mom, it's not fair, he's got seven characters, just say, really? Okay, but so when they come to me and say, Max snuck into my room and took this, this is mine, and he won't give it back. Or, you know, and Max is standing there saying, no, it's mine. So sometimes I'm just like, you know what, I don't know who it belongs to, give it to me. And, and that's an okay thing to do. Okay. But do it without getting angry. Say, well, until, the, un, until both of you will come to me and tell me who owns it and how it got there, I'm going to hang on to it. So you're doing the right thing. Okay. All right. Just don't do it with anger. Don't do it with frustration. Okay. Easier said than done. I know. Mm-hmm. It's got to be the two of them have to come to you and say, "Mom, we decided that it's her arm. It's it's her Lego man." Okay. Okay. They both have to come to you. Not one. Both of them have to. Okay. And if uh, one child says it's not fair, he took something out of my room. You should put all your emphasis on saying, "So what do you think you can do so he won't take it again? What do you think you can do so that it won't reoccur?" So you want to get them into problem solving ahead. Put less emphasis on what you're going to do to put the fire out, and more emphasis on what you're going to do to teach them the skills so this doesn't keep happening. Okay. Another question. Sure. Um, when one of them, because like the now now they can't be on the same floor together without a grown up present. It used to be they just couldn't be in the same room without a grown up present. Now they can't be on the same floor because if I'm downstairs and they're both upstairs and they're supposed to be in their rooms, they will. I mean, it's like moths to a flame. They just can't keep away from each other. Uh-huh. And so a lot of times what I'll hear is like, "Get out of my room! Get out of my room! Get out!" Of <laughs> and the other one's ignoring them. So that one child doesn't have the capability to close the door and lock it? No, we don't have locks on the doors. Although, Jay, actually, Jay could lock his. But he, yeah, actually, it's even odds whether it's he's going to be standing in Max's room torturing him or the other way. Yeah, we could try putting, um, we could try giving Max a lock on his door. Yeah, it's a... If you're comfortable with that, it's a good thing to do if you can do it because you want to teach a child that they're accountable for their own safety. That right. they're responsible for they 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 know they have a place to go to be safe if if you're comfortable with that that happening. And one of the items I put on this list is the cooperation list. Does everybody know what the cooperation list is? No, but I could guess. 
Uh, the cooperation list is because this is something that can belong on there. Uh, it's just a simple little silly exercise that, that I used I, that worked really well for me with three children, three different children, and now stepchildren, and it, and it works. And my three different children had two, three totally different personalities. We sat down and we built two lists as a family exercise. Now, again, uh, also I just want to emphasize having family meetings as often as possible is really important because the more that you have a family meeting with the kids, the more likely they are to feel like they are part of the family unit. And psychologically, what's been proven in research cases, the more a child feels like they are part of a unit, they're more likely to cooperate and fight less. I didn't say not fight, fight less. The cooperation list exercise, you sit down with the kids at the dining room table and you come to the table with two or three pads of paper. And I'll, and I'll explain why three. Um, two, the, there's, you take the first pad and you say, okay, guys, let's make a list. And you've got to do this when everyone's in a great mood. You can't do it when you can just tell this someone's itching for a fight. And so you say, let's make a list of all the things that I will do for you, whether you're good or bad. All the things I'll do for you for all the time, no matter what you do. And the object is you're building a list of the basics, like um, have a warm bed to sleep in, a roof over your head, hot meal to eat, clothing on your back, you know, all the basics. Sometimes when I'm working with parents, I affectionately call it the, the DCF list, the Department of Children and Families <laughs> list, because those are the things they mandate you to do and provide for your kids. <laughs> if your kid tries to say, well, Nintendo, you're the parent, you say, ah, I wish we could put the Nintendo on that list, but nope. I don't have to give you a Nintendo. Go to the mall. Ah, oh, I wish I could put that one there too, but no, I don't have to let you go to the mall. So you want them to basically visually see the things that you are required by law to do. Then you get the other pad, and you build a list of all the other stuff, the extra stuff, the stuff that I like to call it the cooperation stuff. And so I like to label that second pad of paper the cooperation list. And on that list goes all the extras that Department of Children and Families doesn't care at all that you don't do for your children, like letting them have friends over, taking them to the movies, going to the mall, buying them Nintendo cartridges, the extra stuff that we overdo for our children. So when you do this simple little exercise, they actually visually see that, ah, there's a separation between the things of my rights and the things that are privileges. And here's why I say a third pad of paper. You could make a list of all the things that you need from them because you just built a list of all the things they need from you. Permission to go places, to buy things, to go to Timmy's house, and all that kind of stuff. So now the third pad of paper, you get them to help you build a list of all the things that you need from them, like filling the dog water dish or walking the dog or, or not fighting or putting your socks away, or folding the towels, or whatever. You could build that list of all the things that don't belong on anyone's chore list that are just, just things that you need as cooperation. Now, what's really important is you've got to frame cooperation with your kids. You have to tell them. Call them all together at one point and say, okay, guys, girls, here's the deal. Starting tomorrow morning, we're going to do this thing called cooperation. And any time I need your help or I need your support on something, I'm going to start it off by saying, Bobby, I need your cooperation. So basically, for you as a parent, it means no longer are you allowed to go, come over here and feed the dog, 
or get over here and put your underwear away out of the clothes basket. You can't do that. From now on, you have to say, I need your cooperation. So you frame it. You label the moment, and, you, and this works especially well with uh, children six and up. Building this third list, you start building the list of all the stuff of things that you may need their help with. And then what you do is you say, we're going to do this thing in the family. It's called cooperation. The, the more – when it, if, you need, if you want stuff from me off this cooperation list, well, I'm going to need stuff from you off of my cooperation list. And the more you cooperate with me, the more I cooperate with you, which means in the beginning they may test you to see what you're made out of, okay? And they may uh, – so you'll come up to them and say, hey, Bobby, I need your cooperation. I need you to go ahead and put the towels in the closet, and he might go, no, I don't want to do it. And then if you ask for a child's cooperation, the object is you, if they won't do it, you have to walk away. Because is it live or die that you're not going to get the towels in the closet? No. So you're using stuff that you can use their help on, not things that are mandatory. Eventually, they're going to need to come to you. They're going to want to come to you and say, Mom, can I have Sarah over tomorrow? And you have every right to say, mm, let me think about this. You know what? You refused to cooperate with me at a couple of times, so no, Sarah's not coming over today. And then when they scream and throw a fit, let them. You walk away and ignore it because you may have to have a few of these episodes in order for them to learn. Now, I encourage you, don't do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That means if they didn't put the dolls away, then you're not going to do one thing for them. Don't avoid doing that because it just gets too difficult, and that's not what you want them to learn. You want them to learn that if you, if you don't cooperate with me, I may not cooperate with you. You can use this in fighting. Uh, back to uh, Tracy's situation. If you had one child, you're hearing them going, Max, get out of my room. Get out of my room now. You can basically go up there and say, Max, I need your cooperation. Find something else to do right now. And now it changes the dynamics of this thing. No longer is it just him teasing his sister. Now it's you've reframed it that Yikes, there is a risk that I may not get something that I want down the road. You said this only works for kids who are six and older? Well, generally, in general terms, I just say six and older. If you've got a child that's four and five and and they're developing well, if they're developing well, then, yeah, you can use it with them. I'm just saying in general terms. Any additional thoughts if none of that works? (laughs) If none of that works? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, (laughs) that's pretty much what I do. (laughs) I I didn't go to the point of putting it on a list because she can't read, but but I will. That's a that's a great suggestion. Yeah. She she just she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. You know, you need to help me, and and I will give back to you. How old? Five. Uh, See, it might be a little soon for that with her. What is it you're trying to get her to do that she's not doing? Get dressed, brush her teeth, brush her hair, which she capably can do when she wants to, or she can choose not to. So if she doesn't want to, I say, okay, okay. and I walk away. Get on so the school me, bus, just things that she knows that will get me angry if she doesn't do it. You might want to think about using a visual timer. When we wake up, we know exactly what we have to do for the rest of the day, and it stresses us out. When a child wakes up, they think they're in this, they just enter this giant nebulous sea of do whatever I want. They have no time management skills. One technique that works is using a visual timer so they can see how much time, because at, at five, they don't yet understand completely the passing of time. 
So setting a visual yeah, timer. Yeah, I don't have a timer, but I do, I do give them um, time updates. So I let her do her thing in the morning, for example. And I let her know 20 minutes till the five-minute timer. And the five-minute timer means they have five more minutes to finish up what they're doing, and then we're going to go brush teeth, get ready, and go out for the bus. Uh, 15 minutes till the five-minute timer. And then once the five-minute timer goes, you know, beep, 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 there's five-minute timer. And there are days where she won't even make it down for breakfast. And it, it just rips my heart out not to give her anything to eat before she gets on this bus. But I've given her... 30 minutes of, okay, you know, another 30 minutes, 25 minutes, 20 minutes, and I count down, and she just doesn't respond. Audible timers and warnings just don't work when they're that, that, that age. And, again, I'm not trying to push visual timers. They work so much better because children learn through visual representation of the passing of time. And it's just proven to be more successful. Um, have you ever sent her off to school without eating? Um, she's eating very little, yeah. And she says she's just not hungry. Because then, then, I'll say, well, let's go out to the bus stop, you know, with a banana. Let's just get something. Nope, I don't want it. And and we shouldn't force our children to eat. If they're not hungry, then they're just not hungry. And, right, and, just... and, and I don't force her. Um, I mean, I offer her as, as much as I can get, you know, even if we have to walk out there and she takes a cup of cereal or something and she doesn't take it, she won't take it. When they get into the mode where they don't want to cooperate when they're that little, we have to find another way of getting it done because commanding them to do it and giving time updates just it doesn't always prove to be that successful. You have to either find a fun way for them to do it. And I know it's hard to do when we're stressed and we got so much stuff we have to do. But to find a fun way for her to get stuff done because she doesn't care about getting those things done, you do. And then she's going to be she's going to give you resistance to it because she just why can't we just stay here? Right, and play she all doesn't day? care, and she'll yeah. fight me tooth and nail. She doesn't care. Right, and that's You're why right. you, have to, you have to use another strategy that will be more successful, like finding a way to get her motivated to where she's going to go. And if she doesn't care where she's going to go, you know, if there's nothing for her to look forward to, then you might need to use other strategies like some fun ways of getting this stuff done, like beat the clock. That's why visual timers are they're also effective that way. They love to compete. But they like you to... said, when she gets in that mode of I'm, I'm not cooperating today, she just gets in that mode. And it's a mode. It goes then it goes back to helping her feel more powerful. If you find her, if you find ways for her to feel more powerful or, and more valuable, then they'll let go of that. But when they can detect that you want something done, they stick their, they dig their heels in, and they don't, and they won't move. They won't budge. Yep, that's exactly it. And so to, to counter that, the antidote for that is to find ways for her to feel more powerful and more valuable in other ways. And that yeah, takes such the, as. What's that? Such as, Did how I can I make her feel more powerful? You've, Did I you've got it. for a minute, though? What's that? So it's, Doreen. it's Doreen. Hi, Doreen. Can I interject for a minute? Sure. I have a question. I also have three children, and I have a six-year-old uh, who also does exactly the same thing. She won't eat in the morning, and she takes her very long time to get to the, to the bus. What I find works for her is to give her choices but of course they're my choices 
what clothes do you want to put on or what food do you want to eat, stuff like that. And sometimes I even talk to her the night before, try to explain to her how Yeah, we, we do do clothes the night before because that's a, um, a, a big hot topic. Right. Uh, clothes, clothes are an issue and you know what sometimes the clothes she agrees to the night before is the exact reason she's not going to cooperate the next day she Why will agree to it the night on? before and then the next day she just won't be happy mm-hmm. with it and just won't want to put it on she won't say anything she just I mean I can sense it that it, it right. it's the clothes she because she well, can't wear a skirt or she can't wear a dress you know, because it's gym day and she has to wear pants or something. So right. that Why kind of thing, she, unfortunately, doesn't work. Why can't she run with a dress? Why can't she run with a dress? I feel that it's important that she wear pants some days. She doesn't have to wear pants every day, maybe once, twice a week. I don't have enough dresses and skirts for her for every right. day of the week. I pick gym days as a day that she should wear pants. Right. I I try and pick days that are under 32 degrees that she has to wear pants because it's warmer. You know, it's it's more practical than, than anything, the days that I pick where she wears pants. And sometimes she's okay with it. Sometimes she's not, you know, and it's it's pick or choose. You just, you never know what, what you're going to get the next day. Let her choose that morning and make the choices no more than two items. You can pick between this outfit or this outfit. And if you don't want to pick, then I'm going to have to pick for you. And that's when the that's when the argument starts. That's exactly right. when the argu- That's exactly what I do, and that's exactly when the argument starts. I'm not picking. There's no need yep. for to, for power. What I think you need to do is find a way for her to feel more in control about the morning process. Yes, Maybe more than beyond just the clothes. Look for something right. else in the morning process that she can be in charge of because a child who digs her heels in feels like they have no control. And when they don't, if they can detect that you are being very firm with something, they're going to fight you even harder. So you've got to find something else in the morning process that's going to help her feel more powerful, that she can have a choice. I guess so, that's um, my struggle. I can't find anything else. I'll, I'll let her be flexible on breakfast. I'll let her be flexible on snack. I'll let her be flexible on, okay, don't get dressed now, get dressed later after breakfast. I'd be okay with any of that, but it that's, that doesn't matter to her. Do, do, do you ever try maybe uh, for her to pack her um, lunchbox? Um, I haven't tried that. Uh, that, I could try that. That's a good idea because what Doreen just suggested is just one small thing to make them in charge of, to make them feel powerful. They're because inside the human spirit is the desire to be powerful and valuable. And if they don't really have it, they're going to find it and take it in ways that is going to be un, you know, a, a real challenge for us. But listen, I've got to end the call here. I'm going to have one coming up on Power Struggles. We can get more in the process with, with that You've been listening to my new Creating Cooperative Kids podcast series. If you would like more assistance with discipline and parenting, please visit my website, www.cooperativekids.com. And remember, making the world a better place to live begins by helping our children find their purpose. All information on this recording is the property of Bill Corbett and Cooperative Kids. Copyright 2011, Cooperative Kids Publishing.